Okay, so we are in a summer series this month and last month that we're calling People, Places, and Things. And what we're doing is we're going into the Word of God and we're, we're bringing the Word of God to life and, and looking at how it applies to our life based on the people, places, and things out of the Word of God. And today, my text verse is out of John 10, verse 10. I'm going to have you stand with me, if you would, please, just in honor of reading God's Word together. Uh, this is the same verse that I used on Wednesday night when I spoke to the youth, but it's not the same sermon, so you guys still have to listen. All right? Okay. Uh, John 10, 10, these are the words of Jesus. He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came so that they may have life and have it more abundantly. It's a wonderful promise from our Savior. My, the title of my message today is Abundant Life. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we love you. We thank you for your many, many blessings in our life. Lord, we thank you for your sweet presence in this place today. God, I pray that today my words would be your words. We thank you that your word is what transforms us. So God, we give ourselves to you during these next few minutes and I pray that you would do what only you can do in our hearts and that you would seal the work you're doing in each one of our lives today by your spirit. We promise to give you all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. You're the only one that deserves any of it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Before you're seated, turn to your neighbor and say, you were made for abundance. I do want to welcome everybody watching online as well today. Welcome to, to church online. It's a great thing to have technology, to be able to be taking this message all the way around the country and even in different parts of the, of the world sometimes, especially with military that are, that are uh, deployed overseas. So uh, welcome, and uh, God bless you guys too. So my message today is about abundance. Um, the idea of abundance is, is more than... Uh, just what we might think of it on a surface level. Um, and I know we're talking about people, places, and things, and, and uh, this isn't necessarily a thing, but if you know your English and you know what a noun is, it is a person, place, or thing, or an idea. So the idea of abundant life is what I'm sharing today. So I'm taking a little liberty with our sermon series this summer, but uh, I really felt like this was a message the Lord gave me, so I really want to share it with you today. Um, so what is abundance? The, the dictionary definition says that it's more than enough that it's an ample amount of something in our life. So if you have an abundance of something, you're not just getting by with whatever that thing is, you actually have a lot of it. So if you have an abundance of energy, you have more energy than you need to, to accomplish the tasks that you need to accomplish in a day. It also means you don't have any children. <laughs> um, if you have more than enough time, if you have an abundance of time, it means you have more time than you need to accomplish the things you need to accomplish. Consequently, also means you don't have children. Um, I'm just kidding. I love my kids. Thank you. Um, if, you have an, if you have an abundance of shoes, it means you have a lot of shoes, which means you have probably enough shoes to match every outfit you have in your closet. Right, ladies? And it, I'm told that's a good thing, <laughs> I suppose. So uh, having enough shoes or uh, we have abundance of space in this room to have plenty of people in here, which is nice. If you have an abundance of money, it means you have more money than you need to just accomplish what you need to accomplish. You have enough to have extra and maybe go on vacation or have a savings account, right? So we, we get what abundance is in the di dictionary definition of it. But what did Jesus mean when he said, I have come that you would have abundant life? See, this verse has been misinterpreted uh, many, many times in many places uh, since this word was written. And we have to know that I don't think Jesus just came so that we would have enough shoes for every day of the month. That can't be what abundance is about. In fact, I would argue that abundance that he's talking about here is not about possessions at all. 
I would argue that since, we, since it's in this Bible, and this Bible is written and used all over the world in many different languages, if you go to some of the developing nations in this world where the people are incredibly poor, you can know that they, they have the same John 10.10 10 that we do. They have the exact same verse as we do. But it doesn't matter how much some of those Christians around the world believe, how much they have faith for, how hard they work, chances are they're never going to have a big house and two cars and a savings account. So it can't just be about, abundant, about possessions. And frankly, most of us know that you know, we, we live in a time in this country where we have more wealth and more things at our disposal than ever in the history of the world. You could say we have an abundance of things more than we've ever had. Yet there is more discontentment in this generation than in the history of the world. There are people living all over the world, billions of people that are living on a few dollars a day that aren't exactly sure where their next meal's coming from. Many of those people are more content than many of us American Christians. So, we can deduce by that that John 10, 10, Jesus was not just talking about possessions. Now, of course he wants to bless us, and if we live in a country where we're blessed and we can have those things, that's a good thing. I'm not here to knock that and say we shouldn't have stuff and we should all live in, in poverty in huts. It's not what I'm saying at all, but this abundant life that Jesus has called us to is so much more than just the possessions than we can have. In fact, I would argue that the abundance that Jesus is talking about is an abundance of contentment. It's an abundance of joy. It's an abundance of peace in our life and overflowing, having more than enough peace in our life, having more than enough contentment in our life than what we actually need just to live on. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing that God wants to give us that. So does, if, if that's being said, is there any hope for a people who have everything, but we're missing the one thing we need? I would argue that there is hope for us, that we can have the abundant life. I know the older I get, the more I put a premium on Jesus's definition of abundance than I do on the world's definition of abundance. But I still struggle with that sometimes too. We all do, don't we? We still like the things. We like the shiny things. And so there's always going to be that tension there in our life. But we have to focus on what Jesus meant when he said that we could have an abundant life. As we grow, we learn that it's not in things, it's not in money, it's not in having more money, it's not in our jobs, it's not in our friendships, it's not in our relationships, it's not even in our family where we're going to find fully sustained contentment in our life. In fact, I can tell you unequivocally there is nothing, nothing in this world that will sustain contentment in our life. Now, there are things that we can have, you know, temporary contentment. There's things that can make us happy. It's fun to spend money. Amen. We're not unspiritual to say that. It's fun to buy a car when you buy a new car, and you drive it off the lot. That's a lot of fun. That can bring temporary contentment until the first payment check thing comes in the mail, right? Then everything changes suddenly. The, or even if you paid cash for it. After a while, the new car smell wears off and it, you find out, wow, this is just the thing to get me from point A to point B. And it's just not content after a while. And it's what we learn, what we do with that feeling will determine whether or not we'll really have contentment in our life. Are we going to just go out and buy another car then because we just like that, so, that feeling so much? Or are we going to look and see what the biblical example of contentment looks like in our life? So the question would be, how do I get it? How do we get that abundant life that Jesus called us to live and paid the price for us to live? Well, let's look at what the Apostle Paul says. We're going to look at a good bit of what the Apostle Paul said in regards to this, because he has a lot to say on the subject. In Philippians 4, verse 12, beautiful verse, he says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret 
of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So Paul, he said, he gives us three really great truths here in this, in this short scripture. He says, first of all, that it's a secret. Contentment in our life, living that abundant overflow of contentment in our life is a secret. And if you were here last week, and maybe you remember, uh, the only reason I remember is because I have my notes. <laughs> But uh, it's hard to remember what happened yesterday, let alone a week ago. But last week I talked about how some of the things in the kingdom of God are hidden. There are things that are hidden. The Bible talks about, you know, the pearl of great price. A man found a hidden pearl, and because of that, he went and sold everything he had and bought that pearl. There are things about the kingdom of God that are hidden. They're not hidden from us. They're actually hidden for us because God wants us to seek after the things of God. Well, we find out in this verse here that contentment, living in godly contentment is actually a secret too. And if it's a secret, that means not everyone's going to get it. It means not everybody's going to find it. Because to get it, to find contentment in our life, you have to want it more than you want what you want. You have to be willing to sacrifice to get contentment in life. And sadly, some of us, a lot of Christians will never experience this abundant life that Jesus talks about because we're not willing to really sacrifice to get it. Because that's exactly what it requires. We want God to just supernaturally give us contentment and make it just overwhelm us and overflow us. That's not how God works. He doesn't strong arm us. He wants us to want it. He wants us to seek after it. So it's a secret. He also says that it's learned. He said, I've learned the secret of being content. So if something that's learned, that tells me that it takes some time. Paul had to learn this over time to be content. That tells me there was times he wasn't content, which is good to hear that the great apostle Paul went through moments of discontentment. Makes me feel a little better about myself, right? But he says he had to learn the secret of being content. So it takes experience in life. It's not a quick fix. You know, I'm not going to say something here today that's going to all of a sudden just make you content and you walk out of here and you never struggle with discontentment or, or feeling uh, less than stellar in your life. It's something that we have to learn. It's something that we have to go after. It's something that we have to get. I can plant seeds in your life and the Holy Spirit can use that to produce fruit in our life. That's what I pray for every week for us, even in my own life. But it's something that we have to learn. It means you can't buy it. You can't bargain for it. I mean, if I could just, you know, plop down a couple hundred bucks and God gives me contentment, that'd be a great deal. But that's not how it works. We have to learn to have it. So then he also says that he's learned the secret of being content in every situation. Every situation. Now, this is huge for us, church, because, you know, it's easy to be content when things are going well. Things are going good. I'm content. You know, if everything's just peachy keen. I'm doing wonderful. There's, there's, no, there's not even really any struggles a lot of times. But he says, I can be content in every situation. And you might say, well, that's, that's the Apostle Paul. You know, he was called to be a missionary. You know, he had to live a difficult life. He says, I have lived with plenty and been in need. So he had a lot. And he said, I've learned to be content in every situation, not just when I have a lot. So if we can be content in every situation, that's a powerful, powerful thing. He's given us a personal guarantee here, church, that you can be content no matter what your circumstances are. It doesn't mean we don't grieve. It doesn't mean we don't mourn. It doesn't mean we don't get sad sometimes. But contentment isn't about that. It's about the peace of God overflowing out of our lives, that we can walk victoriously through any situation that might come our way. He's saying, I can be content if I just got a promotion or if I just got a pink slip. I can be content if I'm celebrating the birth of a child or if I'm grieving the loss of a loved one. He says, in every situation, I have learned the secret of being content, and we can learn it too. He goes on to say in the very next verse in Philippians 4.13, one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. He says, I can do everything 
through him who gives me strength. Now we love that verse because that's what we want. We want the strength of God. And he's telling us the contentment that we can have, that, that abundant life that we're gonna have in our life is only gonna come from one place, the strength of God. It comes from his strength. And you might be thinking, great, I'll take two, one for me and one for my friend, right? Give me the strength, I want it. What do I gotta do? Let me have it, God, just bring it on, I'll take it. But again, it's not that simple. You know, the, um, there's good news and bad news when it comes to the strength of God in our life. The good news is that it's available to us. The bad news is, it kind of works like I talked about last week with patience. You know, you have to, if you're gonna pray for patience, you gotta get ready. Because God's not just gonna give you patience all of a sudden. He's gonna put you behind the slow drivers in the CSRA, you know? He's gonna put you in the line where the cashier doesn't know what she's doing or he doesn't know what he's doing. He's gonna put you in places where you're gonna have to allow the Spirit of God living in you to have his way, to manifest and to, to and embrace the Spirit of God and what he is, is convicting you or calling you or nudging you to do in those situations where you know you need to have patience but you really don't feel it. It's something we learn, it's something we grow into. It's the same thing with the strength of God. If you want the strength of God, he doesn't just say, I'm just gonna give you my strength. Paul tells us very clearly where the strength of God comes in our life and this is where we get tripped up all the time because this is the hard part to understand, it's the hard part to grasp. He says that his strength is made perfect in what? in our weakness. So for us to get God's strength in our life, we have to purposely determine in our life, I'm gonna be weak so that he can be strong. God says, as long as you're strong, as long as you're doing things in your strength, as long as you're trying to figure out how I can be content and how I can, how I can have abundant life, and if I just work a little harder, if I just do a little more, if I just read my Bible a little more, if I just pray a little longer, if I just go to church a little more, God's gonna give me the contentment. He says, no, I want you to be weak. I, you need to get to that place where you realize, Paul even said, if I'm gonna boast in anything, I'm gonna boast in my weakness. Now, why would he say that? Paul wasn't some wimp that just wanted to be wimpy and weak. He's boasting in it because he says, that is the key to getting God's strength in my life. That is the key to really being content in my life. So the key here is not to pray that God give me strength, it's pray, God, show me my weakness. Because the amount of strength we will have in our life, spiritual strength that we're gonna have in our life is directly proportionate to the amount of weakness we embrace. And that's what makes Christianity different from every other philosophy, every other religion, every other idea in all the universe is because you actually can't have the strength of God in your life unless you're willing to embrace the weakness that he wants us to embrace. God wants the glory and that's why he does it. He, does not, he doesn't want to share his glory. God's a very, very specific, his, his characteristic is very specific that everything is about him, it's about his glory, it's about his kingdom, it's about his purposes. You get to get swept up in that and that's a really great thing, but his strength comes into you only for his glory because when we do it in his strength, that's when we know and we can step back and say, okay God, you did that. And that's his goal for us is that he would be able to have the glory in our situation. And if we're honest, I think some of us are maybe a little disappointed by that. Maybe sometimes we just wish that, you might even wish that I would have said, you know what, if you'll say this prayer on, at breakfast and dinner three times a week, and if you'll do one good deed a day, and if you read at least three chapters out of your Bible every day, if you do all these things, then God's gonna make you content. We actually understand that. That would actually be easier because it's just a ritual then. We as humans are drawn more to rituals than we are to really having that relationship with God because to really have the relationship with Jesus that he wants us to have and that he requires for us to be able to have that abundant life, it requires us giving him our heart. And we don't wanna give 
our heart away because that's where it gets really dangerous. I can do some rituals. It just takes a few minutes of my time. I can handle that. But you're saying you want my heart too? You want everything? I got to give it all to you? You know, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees more than anybody else in all the gospels when he was on the earth. We see him just rebuking the Pharisees over and over. And it was because of that, because they had created a bunch of rules and rituals to try to get God to do what they wanted, to try to get favor with God. And Jesus says, you're doing all these things, but your hearts are far from me. That's why I rebuked them. Not because they were leaders, not because they wore weird clothes or because they were any type of person other than the fact that they did not give him their heart. And he says, I don't want all your rituals. I want your heart. Now the things we do will still come out of that, but it's out of an overflow of our heart, not to try to get God to do what we want him to do for us. Paul show us, shows us the heart needed to find this secret of contentment in Philippians three. Verses seven to nine, he says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I could stop right there. That'll preach all day. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. I consider them garbage. I consider them trash that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul is basically saying, listen, I've already had plenty and compared to knowing Jesus, it's all garbage. That's the revelation Paul had. That's the revelation that we should be begging God to give us in our life because we don't always feel that way, do we? Yeah, we definitely want to know Jesus. We want to love him. We want to be closer to him. But is everything else really worthless compared to him? I don't always feel that way, but I want to. And as I grow in my relationship with him, I start to see it more in my life where the shiny things don't matter as much. The closer I get to him, I'm still thankful for the stuff I have, but it's like, you know, God, at the end of the day, it's all yours. So your will be done, not mine. And he still blesses us because that's just how good he is. But that we would have the heart that everything compared to knowing Jesus just doesn't really matter a whole lot because that's what really matters in this life. And you know, it's funny because if the apostle Paul were living in our churches today, if he was living in the United States today and he was making trips to churches and he was speaking at churches, let me just say, if he ever emailed me and said, can I speak at your church? He's got an open door to speak here (laughs) happily. Uh, but you know, if he did come into churches, a lot of places would consider him a religious nut by the things he would say. If he came into a church and said that, Hey guys, everything you have, all this stuff you're working so hard for, it's all garbage. It doesn't matter. It means nothing. He said, he would say, I've had all that. I was rich. I was wealthy. I had power, prestige. I had authority. People, people were following me. I had servants. I had everything. It doesn't mean anything. It's all about Jesus. It's all about knowing him. And man, that that would not just be something we would amen on Sunday morning because it sounds like the right thing to do, but that it would be in us, that we would live that out in our life. God, help me to not want anything more than I want you. And that's where we really find the contentment and 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 the abundance that Jesus really wants to give us. But you know, it's not our own, it's not just our heart that we're fighting against in our life. Our heart is deceitfully wicked above all else, the Bible tells us, but it's not just our heart. We also have an enemy of our soul and he's fighting against us too. He loves nothing more than us being discontent. That's one of his goals in life. And Jesus tells us in this verse in in John 10, 10, he says, the goal of the enemy is to steal from you, to kill you and destroy you. And he says, but my goal is that you would have abundant life. So 
The enemy's goal is to keep you from that abundant life. So he's trying to keep you discontent, trying to steal your peace, trying to steal your joy, trying to make you want everything else in the world besides Jesus. So that's his goal. So he's constantly fighting us on that too. And he keeps us discontent by enticing us to believe his lies. We know that the native language of our enemy is lies. If he's speaking, he's lying, he's twisting things and he's subtle. I was sharing with the youth Wednesday night. That's what he does. He doesn't, we don't have to worry about him. We don't have to be afraid of him. What we have to do is be afraid of ourselves and the fact that we listen to him sometimes and we allow him to deceive us. He entices us. He enticed Adam and Eve to eat the fruit because, of that, because he knew if he did that that would cause them to lose the abundant life that God wanted for them. So that's what he does. So we have to remember the fact that we have an enemy of our soul too. What he's going to do when, when he talks about when Jesus says that his idea is to steal, kill, and destroy, it's about your past, present, and future. He wants to steal from you by getting you to, to dwell on your past. He wants to kill your present, and he wants to destroy your future and your destiny. So what we have to do is we have to, we have to be aware of it, remember it, and we got to be very intentional about how we deal with it. So first thing we need to do when it comes to our past is we need to have no shame. Everybody say, no shame. No shame. We have no shame. There is no place for shame in the life of a child of God. Can I get an amen? No place for shame. Shame is a tool that the enemy uses to keep us from having the abundant life God wants us to have. There's absolutely no place. Shame never, ever comes from your heavenly father. Now, I don't want you to confuse shame and conviction. They're two very different things. Conviction is something that comes from our God. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict us of the things we have done. But the idea of conviction is so that we would ask his forgiveness, so that we would repent and turn from those things that we've done and move forward. And we would understand that when we ask that and we, when we walk that out, that God has forgiven us. And that he does not hold our past sins against us. But shame would want to remind us of those things. He wants to remind you of your past and the mistakes you made and cause you to keep your head down. There is no place in the, in the life of a child of God to have their head down because we are victorious because of what he did for us. Now, it doesn't mean we haven't made mistakes, okay? If the only way to not have shame is to never make mistakes, we're all doomed. We've all probably made mistakes in the last couple days, maybe even this morning. We all make mistakes. So it's not about not making mistakes. It's about understanding that we don't have to live with shame because of what Jesus did for us. But shame is a, is a powerful, powerful tool that the enemy will use to keep us down. We don't deny that the things happened. You don't need to deny that the, of the mistakes you made, but you need to understand that those mistakes don't define you. That is not who you are. You may have done it, but that's not who you are. That's in the past. And it does not need to be something that we dwell on. Psalm 103.12 says, as far as the east is from the west, that is a long, long way. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. If you are a child of God, your past cannot be held against you. The only person that can hold your past against you is you. So if you need to, you need to go home and look in the mirror and say, stop holding it against me. Whatever you got to do. Because when we have been forgiven, and then if we bring it up again in the future, again to God, God would say to you, I don't know what you're talking about. Because as far as I'm concerned, that is done and gone and over. 
but yet it's easy for us to dwell on the mistakes we made. And let me tell you, that will keep you from the abundant life that Jesus wants for you as much as anything in life is dwelling on your past mistakes. We've all made them, but we, we can all walk away from those mistakes and walk in the victory that God has for us. Maybe you think, well, I need to beat myself up. This is how I used to live. I used to think if I screwed up, I gotta, I gotta feel bad about it for a while. And the bigger the screw up, the longer I had to feel bad. And I would even bargain with myself. Like, well, how long do I need to feel bad about this one? That wasn't so bad, a day or two maybe. Ooh, this one's pretty rough. I probably need a few months on this one. And it sounds ridiculous, but I know I'm not the only one in this room that does that or has done that. There's this penance we feel like we have to pay. Like, man, I really messed up. I gotta pay some penance. You don't have to pay any penance. The penance has been paid. It was paid 2,000 years ago on a cross. And it's over and it's done. And if you've asked God to forgive you, you can rest assured 100% of the time it is forgiven and it is gone. Now, some of you though may have situations where there's people in your life that keep reminding you of the mistakes you've made. Maybe a coworker, a friend, or a spouse, God forbid, or a pastor or somebody in your life that is reminding you of your mistakes to maybe make it so you keep your head down. I can tell you that person doesn't have any power over you either. And I will say this too, if, you're, if you are that person and you maybe there's somebody in your life that you feel like you gotta bring up their mistakes every once in a while just to make sure they remember how much you've forgiven them, right? That's not how forgiveness looks. That's not forgiveness at all. And if that is you and you're doing that, I wanna tell you today, stop it. You are being used by the enemy. That is a tool of the enemy to keep us down. There's no place for that in the life of a follower of Jesus. We don't need to be the ones that remind people of their shortcomings and of their sins. Because I mean, you, you can't, don't start throwing rocks when you live in a glass house, right? None of us have met the mark. None of us have done everything that we need to do. So we don't need to be agents of shame for people in our lives. In fact, the Bible tells us very, very clearly in Romans 8.1, it says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. There is now no shame for those who are in Christ Jesus. The cross is more than enough to destroy all the shame in your life. And frankly, when we don't accept that and we still think we have to feel bad about it, we still have to walk with our head down, what we're telling Jesus is, you know what? The cross isn't enough for me to forgive myself. It's enough for you to forgive me, but it's not enough for me to forgive myself. My standard is higher. I need more than a cross to forgive myself. That's what we're saying when we don't allow it to be in the past and allow Jesus to wash those sins away. And I know that's not our heart. In the court of shame, there was lots of evidence against Paul. He persecuted Christians horribly before he got saved. He stood there and approved of them stoning Stephen. But yet we see, he says in Philippians 3.13, he says, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Look at the verbs in that passage. Forgetting, straining, pressing on. He's been called. That's the, that's the, that's the message for us today, church. Don't dwell on the past. Okay, so in the past, we have no shame. In the present, we have no blame. We don't live lives of blame. We are, there's no place for blame in the life of a Christian either. Blame will eat contentment for lunch and come back for seconds. 
It'll, it'll breed discontentment in our life. You will never live that abundance that Jesus wants you to live if we live a life of blaming people or situations for whatever we're going through in our life. It's human nature to blame people, obviously. The, uh, you, you learn that very, very young. If you have a little child, you can see quickly that it is very innate in all of us to blame others for the things that happen. It is not in our sin nature to take responsibility. It's not in our sin nature to forgive. It's not in our nature to look at a situation with perspective. It's in our nature to say, he did it. It's in our nature to say, it was his fault. It was this his fault. It was the world's against me, whatever it was. That's our nature. But we don't live by the sin nature. We live by the nature of the Spirit of God that lives in us. And you know, the only thing that blame accomplishes in our life is discontentment. And you might say, well, you don't know what I'm going through, Pastor. And you're right, I don't. In a room this size, I'm sure some of you are going through some tough stuff right now. And some of the rest of us that aren't right now have gone through stu tough stuff in the past. And it may, there may be trauma. There may be situations where you're, you've been a victim of a crime or you've been mistreated or you've been taken advantage of or you're, something is happening in your life that is not fair. And so the, the idea is to want to blame. But I can still tell you, no matter what we're going through, and I'm not trying to minimize what you're going through at all, because the pain is real, the, the struggle is real, but no matter what we're going through, we still don't have a biblical right as Christians to, to live a life of blame, to be blaming people for our situation, but, to more, but, but more about looking at it and trusting God in our situation. Not blaming, but trusting. Because what happens is the blame game gives us a victim mentality. And there is no place for a victim mentality in our lives. Things are going to happen to us and we may be the victim of an event. You know, you may be the victim in a situation, but there's a big difference between being a, a victim of a situation and being, having a living with a victim mentality. It's a very different situation for all of us. And who, because who you are in adversity is who you are. I'll say it again, who you are in adversity is who you are. It's easy for us to be nice and full of grace and compassionate and friendly when things are going well. But who you are really comes out when you go through a difficult situation in your life. And if your tendency is to want to blame, then we're missing the mark because we are not meant to be blamers, we're meant to be overcomers. We're not victims, we're victorious. That's what the Bible tells us, but we have to know how that looks in us, how it looks to live that out in our life. Because you can blame all day. There's a million things we can blame for what's ever happening in our life. You can blame your worry on the fact that you don't make enough money. Or you, you blame your worry on the fact that you just really care about your kids. You know, you can blame your bitterness on the fact that somebody did you wrong. You can blame lust on the fact that, it's, that there's stuff all over the television and movies and billboards and everywhere. You can blame everything for anything in your life. But at the end of the day, it's not gonna bring you victory in your life. If you really wanna live the abundant life that God has called us to live, you can't live in such a way that we are blaming. Because the Bible tells us we're more than conquerors. It doesn't mean every situation goes our way. It just means we're not victims to the situations that come in our life. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 28, that he works good in all situations for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. He doesn't work the good in every situation for everybody. It's for those who love him and are called. So if we love him and we live for him, then we are called so we can trust that he's gonna work the good in it. It may not be the good we want, but it's gonna be the good that God wants to bring into our life. 
And the biggest danger about blame is when we blame God. Because we have a tendency to do that too. Shake our fist at God. Say, God, why'd you let this happen? Why did this happen? Maybe you trusted God for something. Maybe you put yourself out there and you said, okay, God, I'm really gonna, I'm gonna live for you and I'm really gonna trust you and I'm gonna believe for you. And then something traumatic happened or something bad or he didn't come through in a way you wanted him to come through. So you blame God for the situation in your life. But that is a scary place for us to be, to be blaming our God. You know, if anybody had any right to blame God, it was Paul. Paul had a really, really good life before he got saved. His life didn't get tough until he got saved. He, started, he decided he was going to live for Jesus, and he ends up getting shipwrecked three times. He got beaten with 39 lashes, I think five times. He got beaten with rods a few times. He got put in prison a couple times. He got bitten by a poisonous snake. He had all kinds of things happening. He's running for his life all the time. He was hungry. He was cold. had everything in the world that could happen to him. Yet what he says is, it all doesn't matter. It's all about knowing Jesus. He could have blamed God too. But we understand who God is and what he's done for us. There would never be anything in us that would ever allow ourselves to blame him, but we can trust him even in those tough situations in our life. So for the future, we play no games. It's about no shame, no blame, and no games. Your future, this is all about your destiny, whether or not you're going to play games with your faith. Too many of us are playing games with our faith. What has happened is there's a trend in the church to make our faith transactional. And that is a scary place to be. Our faith is not meant to be transactional. And you might say, well, what does that look like? What do you mean transactional? So a transactional relationship, if you have a, a good idea, a good example of a transactional relationship is one with a car salesman. You go to a car lot to buy a car and there's a, you have a relationship with a salesman. The salesman is trying to sell you a car they're trying to get what they can get in the situation. You're trying to get the best price you can get, the most perks you can get out of that, out of that relationship, to, and you're both in it for yourselves. And that's normal, that's, there's nothing wrong with that, right? That's, the salesman's trying to feed his family and you're trying to get a car for the best price you can get. But you don't really care about each other a whole lot. And as soon as that deal is done, as soon as you bought that car and you've driven off the lot, your relationship with that salesman is over until you need him again, until you need another car or until you, want, you need to get it fixed or something else. That's a transactional relationship. And too many times we as Christians have a transactional faith where we have this relationship with God where we're trying to get as much as we can get from him and we think he's trying to get as much as he can get from us and we're trying to see how little we can give him but still give him to get us what we want. And that is a very, very dangerous game to play. And we are messing with our destiny. We are messing with our future. We are messing with our eternity when we play these games of having a transactional faith in our life. And it is not biblical because the transactional faith doesn't deal with the inner man. It doesn't deal with the heart. I don't have to have a heart for my car salesman. I don't have to have a heart for a transactional relationship I have. We would never put up with a transactional relationship with our spouse, you know, where it's just about what I'll give you and if you'll give me, and it's just, it's mechanical and there's no heart attachment involved. We wouldn't put up with that, but yet we will do that with our God because giving him our heart can seem too dangerous for us, or it can seem like it's just too much. I just can't handle that. I can't give my heart to somebody that I can't really see. When in reality, he's the one we should be giving our heart to more than anyone, not having a transactional relationship with him. Please hear me today, church. There is nowhere, there's no hint anywhere in this big book 
where a transactional faith is anything more than an abomination. God doesn't want us to be transactional, that we would try to bargain with him like, okay, God, I, I need salvation, so I'll give, you, I'll give you a little bit. I'll give you some of this. I'll give you a little bit of prayer. I'll give you a little bit of Bible reading. I'll give you a little bit of my money. I'll give you a little bit of my trust, but then I'm going to need this from you. I need you to bless my marriage. I need you to bless my finances. I need to get a better job. I need these things. And we start to have this back and forth with God. And what happens is this is when we get to blaming God is because God didn't do, we didn't, he didn't hold up his end of the bargain like we thought he should. So we start blaming him, but it's only because we're having this transactional relationship with him. And Paul shows us the real heart of a relationship with God and what it's meant to look like in Galatians two, in his book to the church in Galatia, verse 20, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, but it's also a very, very hard word. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now let me stop right there. Paul was never crucified, okay? This isn't a literal thing. He was died by beheading. So he was never actually crucified. So we have to look at that and see, okay, well, that's not exactly what he means. So let's keep reading. He says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul's saying, this is what faith looks like. It's not transactional. He's saying, listen, I'm not playing any games. Okay. I used to live for myself. Now I've got, I've given my life to Jesus. And what that means is that I am crucified. I am basically for all intents and purposes, I'm dead because it is all about him. Now my, my life is not about me. My job is not about me. My family is not about me. My health is not about me. My money is not about me. Everything I have is about Jesus. He says, I'm basically crucified. He says, but I honestly, obviously I still have to live in this body. He's saying, so the fact that I live in this body, basically it's just by faith in the son of God. So everything is about Jesus. That's the, that's the, the life of faith. If we want to experience that abundant life, that's the life of faith that God calls us to live. And if we do that, we can be expectant that God will give us the contentment, the peace, the joy, the overflowing that we so long for. We can expect that when we have bought into Galatians 2.20. But when we don't, when we're half-hearted, when we're dipping our toes in the water and trying to kind of feel it out, and we one day we're in the water, the next day we're kind of out, we're, we're standing beside the pool, but we're not really willing to get in all the way. We, we make sure even if we get in, we're close to the edge, so if we want to get out, we can. If this faith thing gets too scary, never experience the abundance that God has called us to. And we're really messing with our future. We're, mess, we're messing with our destiny. And this is a powerful, powerful deception that the enemy perpetrates on us as followers of Jesus. There's no place for dabbling in our faith. It is a matter of life and death. And guys, I wish, I wish so bad. This is something that I have experienced. I, I, I feel like I played games for a long time in my faith where it was kind of transactional. It was like, okay, God, now, you know, I'd remind God that I, you know, I read my Bible today as if he needs to be reminded, but I remind him that I did something because now I need this from you. And I didn't say it out loud, but in my heart, that's exactly what I was doing. It's like, man, my, my church attendance has been phenomenal. Come on, God, I need something. Right. And I start, I, you play those games in your mind and you start thinking that God owes you because of what we've done. When in reality, when we look at the life of Paul, God doesn't owe us anything. He gave everything for us already. Everything. 
That if he doesn't do anything else for me the rest of my life that's tangible, that I can see that, yes, that was God. If he does nothing else, he's still done way more than he needed to, and he has far exceeded any expectations that I could ever have. That's the heart that he wants us to have for him. Not, mm, I'm just not sure. I'm kind of, yeah, I'm going to kind of play around with my faith and see what happens, and I'm waiting for God to do some big thing in the sky where I can see it, then I'll really know it's him. You know, the Pharisees, they asked for a sign. They said, give us, show us a sign. And God, Jesus said, I'm not going to give you one because your hearts aren't there. So the sign won't matter. It'll ooh you and ah you for a few minutes, but it ain't going to change your life. He wants our hearts and he will do anything to get them. You know, we would never jump into a lake if we think we can swim, right? We'd never try to fly a plane because we saw some dude do it on YouTube, Right? But yet we'll kind of dabble in our faith. We'll kind of play around with it. And I'm telling you guys, it's a dangerous game. Don't follow the masses. The masses will lead you astray. The truth of the word tells us that we have to give everything. That our life is not our own anymore. That's why I am here today. That's why I'm here today. I, can't, I, I, I meditate, I think about, I talk with joy about it all the time. Like, what is a Sunday morning supposed to look like? What is a sermon supposed to look like? Am I supposed to do some deep expository teaching and really give you guys the hidden truths of the word and just talk about the Bible? Or, or am I supposed to do more topical things and really give you Christian living things? And, or am I supposed to, what am I supposed to do? At the end of the day, I know for me, what I know God has called me to do is to challenge us every time you will darken the doors of this church that we are to live our lives for Jesus that we are to give him more, that there is always a next step in our relationship with him. There's, there's a next step, a next level that God wants to take us to. And that's what I care about. That's all I care. What, what I want to hear from people is, man, I've been really challenged to just deepen my faith in God. Praise God. That's the greatest testimony in the world. Next to somebody coming and saying, I just got saved. That's even better. But that's what we're about. That's why our mission is to reach people far from God and to lead people to their next step because there's always the next step. And I want so desperately for us to always be taking that next step. And I, there's the next step for me. There's the next step for you. It's for all of us. But I can tell you, I've been at the place where I've dabbled in my faith and kind of made it transactional. And now I'm at the place where I know that everything I have is his. And I, I, I desperately desire, I'm passionate about living in such a way that no matter what happened in my life, it wouldn't knock me off the rails of my faith. Not that I wouldn't grieve if bad things happen or that I wouldn't be sad or have tough days. I don't live up here all the time. Not even close. But I don't, when I start to sense my peace, my contentment, my, my faith in God, when, it's, when I start to sense that it's getting shaky, I know quickly to reset. I know quickly to look at it and okay, okay, what's causing this? Why am I feeling this way? I mean, that's, that's all about just being completely and utterly committed to him. And it is so worth it, church. It is so worth it to continue. We should always be longing to grow in our relationship with him. Amen? Would you stand with me, please? And I'll close us out today. You know, Psalm 37, verse 4. Psalm 37, beautiful, beautiful chapter. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. We love that verse, don't we? But that verse is often misinterpreted. A lot of people think it means, oh, if I delight myself in God, then he's going to give me everything I want. He's going to give me the desires. All these desires I have in my heart, he's going to give them to me. Nope. That's not what he means. He says, if you will delight yourself in me, I'll actually give you my desires that I want to put in you. He'll give us his desires. 
you'll start to see that the things you thought matter don't matter so much. The more I grow in my relationship with Jesus, the less the stuff matters to me because my desires are more about him than they are about my kingdom. They're more about his purpose than my purpose. They're more about his glory than my glory. Am I perfect? Am I there hundred percent? No, but that's a, that's a striving. That's a goal for us. That should be the desire of our heart is that when we delight in him, that we see him removing those things in our life that we used to think were so important that are really just superficial. And as we grow in our relationship, that starts to happen. You know, when you're younger, there's things that matter. Some of you, some of it you grow out of just from being growing up, being an adult, but there's some things that don't go away unless we really allow the Lord to replace those things in our heart with his desires. That's what he wants for us. That's the epitome of the abundant life that he wants to give us, that we would overflow with passion for him, that he, we would consider him in everything we do, that he would matter in all of our things, that even in our downtime, we're looking to honor him and glorify him in our lives. So I want to pray for us. If you are here today and you'd say, you know what? I don't, I don't know Jesus. Then your next step is just to step into salvation. And let me tell you, the Bible is very clear that no one will he cast aside. If you come to him, you can know and trust that he will receive you with open arms, no matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've said this, that I'm, I want to give my life to Jesus and you've turned around and walked away. No matter how many times you've done that, it's always just one step back to him. The Bible's clear. If we confess our sins, if we confess him as Lord and we believe in our heart that he is who he says he is and confess our sins and repent of our sins, that we will be saved. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to hope. You don't have to think. It's done. It is absolutely sealed in your life. And if you're here today and, and you are, you love Jesus, but you're like, yeah, man, I definitely do dabble. I definitely, my faith is more transactional right now. And you just don't, you, you want to just get away from that transactional relationship with him. I just encourage you as we pray today, just tell him that in your heart. Just tell him. He already knows it. <laughs> you can't keep a secret from Jesus. So if we, and if we open our heart to him and say, I don't want this, I want to take my next step. I want to know what it looks like to be more committed to you. And he'll do it. He will do it. He will meet you in that place. He specializes in that actually. So let's pray. Father, we love you today. God, we thank you so much for your word. Your word is life to our bones. It is living water. God, I pray you would do your work in our hearts right now. As we open our hearts to you, Lord, for those that don't know you as their Lord and Savior, God, open their hearts. Help them to take that step to commit their lives to you. For those that need to come back to you, Lord, help them to do it today. And for those of us that know you and just need to take another step, need to get further away from that transactional, need to, need to leave the shame behind and the blame and the games, all of it, and walk towards you. God, help us to do that today. We thank you for your mercy and your grace that you receive us every time with open arms and that you will meet us in that place as we surrender to you. We surrender to you today, God, and we repent of wanting to do things our own way. Help us, God, to seek out the secrets of contentment in our life. We thank you, Jesus, that you came to give us abundant life and to expose the lies of the enemy. Help us to see those lies for what they are, Lord, and to walk in your truth for your glory and for our good. You're so good, God. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Well, let's give God a hand clap of praise today. Thank you, Lord.
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.